So once again, good morning, Four Corners Church. Such a blessing to look out at your faces. And what a joy it was uh, this past weekend, if you don't know, to uh, be part of the men's retreat. And let me just encourage you guys. I know many of you just couldn't make it for whatever reason, but uh, these retreats really are very special. Wonderful times together. For this retreat, we looked at the topic of viewing our work as worship. We've looked at a number of topics over the years. Uh, we do the, uh, we tend to do our away retreat in the spring, and we do our day retreat in the fall. But this year it was a little different, and so we did our retreat away uh, in the fall. And uh, we try to take one theme from our men's ministry mission and make that the emphasis. And the emphasis this year was. Viewing our work as worship. And you know, it's it's great time of instruction, but uh, it's also great time together. It's great time just growing together. You know, you see that the, the time uh, from 2 to 5 on Saturday playing gaga ball and basketball and spike ball and whatever else is as integral uh, to the time that we spend sitting around discussing uh, what we're learning. It's time together as brothers in Christ growing together in that brotherly affection that we uh, have recently seen in Romans 12. And let me just say this too. Uh, Thank you to our wives, because uh, as Cody Marsh brought up last night, uh, so he was was thinking of you, Anna. Um, As uh, Cody brought up last night, you know, our wives are at home uh, with uh, the challenges (laughs) that they are facing without us, and so we're off retreating, and they're at home. And so we're very grateful for you all uh, being willing to take that upon yourselves uh, over the weekend so that your husbands could go and, and grow together with brothers in Christ and learn from his words. So thank you. If you would, go and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Romans 12. 17 to 21. Today we come to part three of a three-part sermon, really one long sermon broken into three parts on this passage. Uh, And this uh, larger sermon has been entitled, A Transformed Life in Practice. And so today is A Transformed Life in Practice, part three. Three, we've been looking at this really helpful, and I hope you found it helpful, this really helpful long list of instructions, directives, commands uh, in chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. It dominates the chapter. So you get these two little sections prior to it, and then that concludes the chapter, this long section of directives from verses 9 to 21. Paul is writing this to his readers telling us what it looks like to really live out the Christian life. This is not Christianity in theory. This is Christianity in practice. This is real Christianity. There are a lot of counterfeits out there. But this is where we really see the life of the Spirit at work. This is where we really see the authenticity of what we profess to be and to believe. It shows up in real life. Paul is telling us what it looks like to live out verses 1 to 2. 
Or I could say it this way, what it looks like to live out of verses one to two. So see this as a tree that is growing out of the soil of verses one to two. And in those opening verses of chapter 12, we saw that we are to present our bodies, our physical embodied selves, we are to pre- present our bodies to God as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. That's one facet of it. We are to not be conformed to the world. So we are to be conscious of what the world is and what the world says. We are to be thinking in terms of what the course of this world is and to say, no, we're not going down that road. Instead, we are to be, con- we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, constantly having our minds renewed by God's word. Constantly, we replace the world's values with the values that we find in Scripture, the values that are encapsulated in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we are to do in a big way. That's the overarching instruction to us. Everything falls underneath that, and that includes all of the imperatives, the directives of Verses 9 to 21. So Paul is telling us that we have to do this out of who we are. We're not just given some sort of morality or some sort of ethic, some sort of list of things we are to do. We very much are doing this out of who we are. And at the core of who we are is being a worshiper. We are worshipers. So let me just say this to you. Verses 9 to 21 of chapter 12 of Romans is telling us that all of life is worship. We have a tendency to think of worship as this kind of compartmentalized thing. We, we have a worship service, and that is true. We have a corporate worship service. Or we might think of worship as those times when we're doing our private devotions. And we speak about family worship, where we come together as a family and worship the Lord. But what we're learning from all of this in chapter 12 is that all of life is worship. And so what does it look like to worship God? Read Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. This is life as worship. So for today's sermon, we come to the last chunk of the passage. Those latter verses, verses 17 to 21. These verses hang together under the double theme of non-retaliation and loving our enemies. These two uh, interconnected themes are presented together here in these verses. Non-retaliation and loving our enemies. In many ways, they parallel Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, which we just read a moment ago, as well as Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, which we read last week at the beginning of the service in the a parallel passage time. So Matthew 5 and Luke 6. What we're finding here, and scholars debate, you know, to what extent Paul is using uh, the gospel tradition, to what extent, you know, that's the sort of thing scholars debate. But uh, for our purposes, we simply see the coherence, uh, how it all fits together. What Jesus is teaching to his disciples, to his 12 disciples and others in his ministry is still very much alive, very much at work, and is defining and dominating the Christian community. In those early decades, and has and should dominate the Christian community throughout church history. Today, 
should define and dominate Four Corners Church. This is the teaching of our Lord. This is his instruction to us. If you love Jesus, you will obey his commands. If you love Christ, you will do what he says. If you believe that he came as God in flesh, that he was raised and exalted as Lord and Christ over all, then you will obey your Lord. This is the instruction of Christ himself. This is life lived out among those in the world. As we come to these latter verses, verses 17 to 21, this is life lived out among those in the world. What does it look like to live among unbelievers? We have a lot of preconceived notions about that, but this is ground zero. What does it look like to live out in society, to live next to our enemies, perhaps right next door, or as Jesus said, he came to bring a sword so that there will be divisions in families on account of Christ. So maybe your enemy becomes those who are supposed to love you most. Your enemy becomes those in your own family on account of Christ. So what does it look like to live out among those in our world? We've already had a little preview of this teaching back in verse 14. You'll remember, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That kind of set the stage for what we're looking at today, these latter verses. And it's important to see as we get started that Paul is basically saying the same thing in multiple ways. As we read through these verses, we're seeing one theme constantly uh, be uh, out, the outworking of this theme, constantly explained. Paul is helping us understand it from multiple angles. Speaking of verses 17 to 21, along with verse 14, John Stott says that all four prohibitions say the same thing in different words. So we're able to look at this like a diamond, different facets of this one overarching command. Live well out in the world. Don't retaliate. Love your enemies. And the amount of space that Paul gives to this, let me just stop here for a moment and say this. The amount of space that Paul gives to this instruction tells us how important this topic is to the Christian ethic tells us how important this is to thinking about living Christianly in the world. So let me just say this to us. We should not emphasize other teaching at the expense of this teaching. So there may be many other things that you affirm and that you emphasize and that you hold up as the teaching of God's word, the teaching of your Lord and Savior Christ. This must be emphasized as well. To de-emphasize this and to emphasize other things is to disobey Christ. It is to come up with our own ethic. It is to come up with our own comfortable morality. Not to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. So I pray that this wonderful teaching of Christ will recalibrate us 
as we think about public discourse, as we think about how to relate to those who have very different views from our own and those who even hate us and persecute us because of who we are in Christ. So if you would go ahead and stand with me at this time for the reading of God's word. We're going to read all of Romans 12. But as I said, our focus today will be verses 17 to 21. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for God's people. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's the big picture. Everything else in the chapter For that matter, everything else, period, flows out of it. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does, acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And then for today, these verses. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can go ahead and be seated. If you think the Christian life is easy, it may sound easy just reading this passage. It's not easy living this 
passage. Just a reminder, as I've said before, you know, the Sermon on the Mount had this effect as well. It's just a reminder that unless we pray, unless we seek God in his word, unless we daily go to the scriptures to find strength, we will not live this way. We will not live this way naturally. But in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, saturated with his word, we can live this way. That's the amazing thing about the Christian life. We can live this way imperfectly, of course. But we can, in God's power, reflect Christ in the world. In fact, not we can, we must. We must. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to read your holy word. Thank you for feeding us, God. I think of Jesus' words to Satan as he is tempted. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus' words to Peter at the end of John as he said, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep with what? With my word. Father, we thank you that you have given us food to eat. Would we not think that we can live and move and have our being malnourished or starved? Father, would we be those who are robustly fed by your word so that we can live to your glory, so that we can live faithfully, so that we can do the impossible, so that we can do what is laid out here for us to do. Father, we thank you for so many in the history of the church and so many even that we know today who have modeled this Christ-likeness as we saw in Stephen's life and Paul's life and many throughout the history of the church. How it is a testimony to the empowerment of your spirit and how you do your work through us. Jesus, you are no longer here. Your spirit is here in your body. And through your body, you continue your work of compassion and proclamation. You do your work through us. So, Father, we, we pray that you would help us to honor you this morning as we preach and listen. Lord, help us to receive your word gladly and to be doers of it as we leave. Father, we ask that uh, what is presented here would be clear. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would guide our thinking as we take this in. In Jesus' name. Amen. So although we have one major theme, no vengeance and loving our enemies as we live among unbelievers, that's a way that we could characterize the main idea of the text. That's always what you're after uh, when you're coming to a passage is what is the main idea of this passage. Although that is the one major theme, I think we can break this down into three emphases as we see this big theme play out, and that will be our, our, those will be our sermon points for this morning, three emphases of this larger theme. So if you go ahead and put that up there, uh, a transformed life in practice, part three, and here are our three emphases for this major theme we're looking at this morning. First, behave uprightly. We'll look at verses 17 and 18 for that. Secondly, suffer trustfully. And then third, respond benevolently. That's a hard word to say. Benevolently. You've got to say it kind of slowly. Uh, so give your kids a little bit of time to write that one down. Uh, behave uprightly, suffer trustfully, and respond 
benevolently. I think that those are the three emphases that Paul gives us here, uh, the three facets of this larger idea of not retaliating, loving our enemies as we live out our lives in a world, in a lost world. Let me also say this before we get underway here with these points. This really is a primer for evangelism. I want you to see it that way. Uh, This is not just ethics. This is evangelism 101. This is the life that must accompany our proclamation. You go out there proclaiming Christ and you put this to the side, you're proclaiming something else. Uh, you're, you're, You're showing yourself to be a hypocrite. What will fundamentally demonstrate the power of your message and will show the truthfulness of it is this kind of life. This will move the hearts of many. And you probably have already seen that. And we could tell stories from Christian history of ways that living this kind of life moves the hearts of people. So I'm not saying, uh, as uh, St. Francis did, and I think he's probably been uh, taken out of context, that we, we, just, we just live it and, and don't proclaim it. That's not what he said. But the idea that, you know, basically we proclaim the gospel by how we live. Uh, of course we do, and of course we proclaim it. We do both. We live and we speak Christ. And hopefully today this will give us a better sense for what it looks like to be an evangelistic person as we live our lives out among unbelievers. So let's look at the first point, behave uprightly. Let's begin by looking at verses 17 and 18 together. Here's what it says. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Our world is filled with Evil. We know that. Satan is the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. The course of this world is under his sway. And so we know that this world, currently called an evil age, is filled with evil, evil of various kinds. And as followers of Christ, that evil gets directed towards us in a particular way. So all the evil, all the moral evil in the world has in particular a target. And that target is the people of Christ, the people of the light, the sons of light, as Jesus calls his people. We saw this when Jesus, the light of the world himself, came into the world. Uh, men loved darkness. They hated the light. And the world still hates the light. And we are the light of the world in Christ. And so we recognize that this evil gets directed towards us in a particular way. As Matthew five eleven says, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's not an if thing. It's a when thing. It will happen. It does happen. When this happens, Jesus says, blessed are you. 
And then Mark 13, 13, Jesus goes so far as to say this to his disciples. You imagine being Jesus's, well, one of Jesus' earthly disciples, and there they are. And, and Jesus looks at them square in the face, and he says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's not a seeker-sensitive message. That's not a, uh, that's not a marketing scheme. That's not, you know, put, put the best part of your message forward. You follow me, everyone's going to hate you. That's Christ's message to his true disciples. And that message applies to us. Follow me and the world will hate you. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So what do we do? What do we do when this evil comes our way? As it does and as it inevitably will. And it's important to recognize what we will want to do First and foremost, when this evil comes our way, what will we want to do when this happens? Our fallen, fleshly response is to get back. That's our knee-jerk reaction. That's natural in Adam for every single one of us. The aggressive and the passive-aggressive alike. For every single one of us, whether low-key or intense, It is the same. We want to repay. We want to get back to repay evil for evil. It is to make the other person pay. That's what we want. You wronged me, I'm gonna get you. That is fallen human nature. It is our fallen impulse, anger and retaliation of some sort. And let me just say this, we're not just talking about attacking someone. This could be ignoring someone. That's repaying evil for evil. Someone does something to you. You do this in your marriage, maybe. A little bit of pouting going on. So you ignore someone because they have done you wrong. That's your, that's your, your way of doing, repaying evil for evil. And you think it's quite fine because you're not screaming and yelling. You're just ignoring them. Repaying evil for evil, or neglecting someone because they have wronged you, or striking back in whatever way, however violent that might be, or abusive or aggressive that might be. This is our knee-jerk response to retaliate in our fleshly anger. But here we are given the way of Christ. Remember, we are Christians. Here we are given the way of Christ. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 39. We are not to think an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Instead, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We read those words too quickly. Those are incredible words. Incredibly profound words. Yes, there is self-defense and public justice. We recognize the validity of both of these things. You are a fool if someone comes and tries to attack your family and you stand there and watch. That is subhuman to do that. Of course, we must defend those whom God has entrusted to our care to protect. And of course, as Paul will so clearly say, 
in Romans 13 regarding the ministry of the sword of the state. We recognize that public justice is a biblical category. Going all the way back to Genesis 9 with the institution of the death penalty as God said that whoever takes man's life by man, his life shall be taken. So we recognize that there is, yes, self-defense and public justice, but there ought not to be personal vengeance, period. Period. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is the teaching of the entire New Testament. This is pervasive teaching. In fact, this is so basic to the Christian witness, so basic to the Christian identity. I would go so far as to say that if you don't have this at the top of your list, if we don't have this at the top of our list, then we are being ill-instructed in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. This is so fundamental to Christian identity. So what's the alternative? What does Paul lay out for us here? What's the alternative of repaying evil for evil? It can be summed up with two ideas. Promote good and pursue peace. That's the alternative. Promote good and pursue peace. First, promote good. Instead of repaying evil, instead of contributing our own evil to society. So just think of it this way. Here we are in society and the world is contributing tons and tons, heaps and heaps of evil. We, of course, those in Christ, ought not to contribute likewise to that pile of evil. So instead of contributing our own evil to society, we, t- we are to be entirely preoccupied with the good. Everywhere we go, everyone we meet, everything we do, focused, laser beam focused on what is good what is noble, what is honorable. Give thought to do what is honorable, noble in the sight of all. There is no space in our thoughts for evil. We're just always thinking about doing good. We're always thinking about the well-being of others. We're just so consumed with that in our minds that there's no room for adding our own evil to the evil that's inflicted to us. Of course, I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm, I'm entirely consumed with doing good. How could I even think of that? 2 Corinthians 8.21, Paul says, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Notice that. We care about the eyes of people in our world. We care about what those in our society think is honorable, noble, and upright. Which means that as Christians, if society at large considers something to be honorable or noble or upright, and it does not conflict with our Christian identity and our understanding of the gospel, we ought to do likewise. We ought to do what is honorable as Paul says here, in the sight of all men. In the sight of all men. Not to be belligerent. Oh, there's a lot of that today. 
those belligerent Christians. That's not what we're seeing here. That's not what we're reading here in God's word. Not belligerence, but doing what is honorable in the sight of all men. And second, we are to pursue peace. To pursue peace whenever possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I want you to notice two things about this call to live peaceably. Both of these are very, very important. The first, on the one hand, this is not peace at all costs. So let's get that down very clear. Uh, Paul says, if possible. This is not peace at all costs. There will be times when peace will simply not be possible. It will be impossible for us to be peaceable. We must love and spread God's truth. We must live with conviction and courage. And this may make it impossible to have peace. We must obey God rather than men. As Acts chapter 5 verse 29 says. We obey God over men. And this of course may make it impossible for us to live peaceably. But. But. On the other hand, notice that we are to be peaceable with others if at all possible. If at all possible, this is what we are to be and do. Our earnest desire, our objective, our overall disposition is one of peacefulness towards those in our world, towards our enemies those who persecute us, those who do us wrong. Let me give you what I think is a great quote from New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner here. He says this, one of the marks of Christians is a winsome and friendly spirit that delights in peace and harmony, not arguments and division. Man, that's convicting. From some of the voices on the internet, you would think that we are told to do the opposite as Christians. There's a lot of voices on the internet right now calling for the opposite. Feistiness, combativeness, quarrelsomeness. Those are the virtues of the Christian. That's not what our Lord tells us. That's what the flesh tells us. Let me just say this to all of us. Be careful what you consume on the internet. Be careful how you saturate your mind with the voices of men and ignore the voice of God. Ignore the voice of his word. The internet, social media, and podcasts. There are many on the internet who have many good things to say. And some of what they have to say is not so good. They are men. We are all mere humans. Ask yourself when you're taking in the content of some internet personality, is this person peaceable? Is this person pursuing peace? Is this person someone who is obeying these words, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all? There's good content from good voices, but sometimes that content can be laced with a non-peaceable attitude. 
And we are responsible for guarding our hearts. We have a door on our hearts. And when we open that door and we fill it and fill it and fill it with voices that in part even are telling us to do things that are contrary to Christ's teaching, we need to shut the door. We need to close the gate. Let me give you another quote, Douglas Moo. Paul does not want Christians to use the inevitability of tension with the world as an excuse for behavior that needlessly exacerbates that conflict or for a resignation that leads us not even to bother to seek to maintain a positive witness. We have seen a ton of that in the last two years among Christians, among conservative, Bible-believing Christians. I think these these verses have so much to say to us in this time of cultural divisiveness. What would it look like for Christians to stand on God's truth and, if at all possible, pursue peace, be peaceable, and to live in the sight of all men, uprightly, honorably, and nobly? Yes, our our world will promote, pursue, and practice evil. But for the Christian, the good and the peaceable are always in view. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. Not getting sucked in to the talking heads. This is what we're about because the only talking head we care about is the head of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our king. He's the one we listen to. We are aliens here. We're aliens in America, we're aliens in Georgia, we're aliens in this world. No one owns Christians but Christ. And we speak for Christ. We live out of Christ. We live out of our identity in Christ. And it is to pursue the good and to be peaceable people. To live a quiet life, as Paul will say elsewhere. There's a lot of loud voices out there. What would it look like to live a quiet life? That's what we're told to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What conquered the Roman Empire? This. This is what culturally conquered the Roman Empire. Christians living this way while being fed to lions, while being burned alive. Christians think that there's some other way to affect things in our world. This is Christ's way. Because this is not in the flesh. This is in the power of the Spirit. This is supernatural living that affects real change in real hearts for the glory of God. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called Sons of God. Are you peaceable or quarrelsome? Are you belligerent, combative, rebellious? You have a chip on your shoulder? Or are you someone who is constantly seeking to be at peace with outsiders whenever possible? We are to behave uprightly in the world. Our second point this morning is suffer trustfully. And for that, we're going to look at verse 19 Suffer trustfully. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here we have the same theme worded a little differently. So what's the emphasis in this verse? In the last two verses, the emphasis was on our witness in society, our manner of relating to those in our world, to those who mistreat us. Here the emphasis is on relating to our God. It's on relating to the Lord in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of receiving evil from other people. In the previous verses, we were told not to retaliate because we want to live uprightly in society. Uh, That's Paul's focus there in those verses, living uprightly in the sight of all men, living uprightly among unbelievers. Here we are told not to retaliate because we want to live piously, faithfully, Unto the Lord. All of the Christian life is a life of faith. Uh, One of the big flashing lights, the big flashing signs of Christianity is faith, faith, faith. All of life is faith. We are at the core believers, those who trust God and His promises. So we go back to chapter 1, verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. And then chapter 4, verse 18, in hope. He believed against hope. Speaking of Abraham, Abraham is the father of faith. What does it look like to live in faith? In hope, he believed against hope. It is to bank all on the Lord. It is to entirely trust God. That is what it is to be a believer. We are those who trust God. We look to God. We entrust our entire lives, our souls, our eternal destiny to the Lord our God. And we don't stop doing this when we are persecuted. We don't stop entrusting ourselves to God when we are mistreated. In fact, it is in moments like that we most need to look to God. It, it, it is in those moments we're being persecuted and mistreated that we most need to look to God to entrust ourselves into his care. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Christ, says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. No one was more unjustly treated than Christ. We deserve hell. He deserved glory, period. How mistreated he was. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You want to know what's going on in the heart of our Savior as he's dying on the cross, as he's being flogged, as he's being spit upon? This, he is constantly second by second entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In his human nature, as the Son of God, Enfleshed, entrusting himself to the Father's justice. Christ could pray for his enemies on the one hand and entrust himself to the Father's judgment of his enemies on the other hand. He could do both at the same time. And Christ is God himself in human flesh. How much more ought we to entrust ourselves to God when we suffer? And the way we do this is by trusting that we are loved and that God will do his job. This this is the way we practically do this. You can write those down if you'd like. That we are loved 
and that God will do his job. Paul refers to the believers at this point as beloved. That's important. Why does he call them that at this point? And I think it's because he wants to remind them that, particularly in the context of this instruction, that this is who they are. They are those who entrust themselves to God while suffering as beloved ones. He reminds them of how absolutely loved they are by God. We never suffer mistreatment. Let me say this. We never suffer mistreatment by others outside of God's watchful care. You can be sure. God is watching you. God is watching over you. God is tending you. He is caring for you. He knows you. You've never suffered at the hands of someone else. And your heavenly father does not have his eyes fixed on you. We're never not beloved. And we read at the end of Romans 8 about how loved we are in Christ. We never suffer outside of his loving arms. We never suffer outside of his powerful, omnipotent, loving, kind hand. And God will do, this is the second part of it, God will do what God does. We must defer to God. It's his job. Part of God's job description, which he's given himself, is that he's the judge. He's the one who exacts vengeance for evil. He's the one who repays justice for, not evil, he repays justice for evil. It is not our job to pay back evil for evil. Who are we? Evil ourselves? How many times have we mistreated someone? How many times have we offended someone? How many times have we been the enemy of someone? We're grateful that we do not get what we Deserve. Who are we to be the judge? Who are we to sit on the judgment seat? God is the just judge. Vengeance belongs to him. And Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. So how we respond to our enemies, this is the big idea I want you to get at this point. How we respond to our enemies is a test of how much we trust God. Have you ever thought about that? You might think a lot about faith and trusting God. And you may associate trusting God with a lot of different things. But have you ever associated faith and trusting God with this? That the way we respond to our enemies is a test of how much we trust God. If our knee-jerk reaction and what we actually do is to curse, repay evil for evil, become combative, and quarrelsome, not seeking to be peaceable, but seeking to decry and fight on our own personal behalf. The problem is a faith issue. It's a trust issue. This is not just a little dangling ethical point. It goes back, it can be traced back to how much we trust God. We suffer trustfully, full of faith, full of trust in God. That's the only way that we can deal with the mistreatment of others is because we, as Christ did, are constantly saying, God, you've got this. You're the judge. I'm not the judge. You've got this. You've got this. Finally, as we wrap up, as we wrap up this morning, the third imperative of this section and the, the place where Paul leaves us is Verses 20 to 21, respond benevolently. 
benevolently. Quoting from Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22, listen to what Paul says. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, this takes us right up into heaven. This command is heavenly. It's all that you can say about it. It is heavenly. This is supernatural living at its best. It is just like verse 14. This is powerful living. Just as we bless our persecutors, so too do we show kindness, benevolence to our enemies. It is not just that we refrain from getting them back. Okay, good. As I said last time with cursing. Okay, good. I'm not going to take revenge. It's not just controlling yourself, restraining yourself from getting someone back. No, we heap good upon that person. We heap good upon that person who has wronged us. Just as they cursed us, we don't just omit a curse. We heap blessings upon them. And this person who's mistreated us, we don't just not mistreat them back. We heap upon them provisions. We take care of them. We lovingly meet their needs. Guys, this is beautiful living. This is beautiful living. This is amazing Christ-like living. It is easy to marshal up whatever else. But this cannot be done apart from the life of God flowing in us. Just as we bless our persecutors, so too do we show kindness, benevolence to our enemies. We build their lives up as they try to tear our lives down. That's what our enemies do. Public enemies. We have public enemies. We have private enemies. Maybe local enemies. All kinds of enemies. And they are, they are trying to tear us down. Whether they say that they are trying to tear us down or not. Whether it's subconscious or conscious, we know who's behind it. It's ultimately Satan. We know what he is doing in the world, in people. And our enemies are trying to tear us down. What's our job? Just endure it? No. To build them that's Christ in the world. That's being a Christian. We receive blows, curses, opposition, and we give food and drink. Oh, it's easy to give food to someone you walk by and see in need. This, oh, this. Giving to those who hate us with all their might. And in the process of doing this, We pour good on the world. Buckets and buckets of good poured out on the world. Why else are we here? Why else are we here? Just to get through and endure? No, to heap good on this world. We are salt and light here as aliens 
and strangers in the world. We become champions. We become victors. We become overcomers. Not when our arguments prevail, but when this life of Christ prevails. When good overcomes evil in the way we treat our enemies. We are not mastered by evil, but we establish the good as the champion when we live this way. This is what it means to fight. This is what it means to fight as Christians. To fight within our own hearts. To fight evil within our own hearts. To fight the impulse that we have to fight back and to repay evil for evil. In doing that, in not doing that, we become champions. We become victors. We reign with our reigning Christ. We anticipate the day when good will reign on the earth, when evil will be entirely wiped out. We ought to be practicing for that day. We don't need to practice for that day, but that is what we ought to be doing. We are those who are living it now. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has broken into the world. The new creation has begun. We are here now living out the life of the new heaven and the new earth. Now in the present, we are to anticipate with our lives a day when there will be nothing but good in the world. And in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that loving our enemies in this way causes two things to occur. Two things happen when we love our enemies in this way. First, it magnifies the Father. It magnifies the Father. You want to glorify God? Do this. This glorifies God more than a lot of other things you think you may need to do. Matthew 5, Jesus says, verses 44 to 45, But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is when you look most like God. This is when you are most godly. This is when you are most Christ-like, showing yourself to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You want to be like God? Love your enemies. That's loving God 101. That's imitating God 101. Second, it shows us to be utterly distinct from the world. Christians are distinctive. I think a lot of Christians think that the way we are distinctive is by being as loud as we possibly can on any given issue, many of which are mere opinions. The way that we show ourselves to be distinct from the world is what we find in chapter 5, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus said, everybody does that. Everybody loves their kids. Everybody loves uh, mom and dad. Everybody loves the guy who's doing them good. But who loves the person who's doing them evil? Nobody but Christ and his people. That's who does that in the world. That's where people see the stamp of the king on this planet is when we live this way. 
This is how good is overcome by evil in the world. This is the primary way that good is overcome by evil. So yes, let's fight for the truth in the public square. But let's fight peaceably. And let's love as Christ calls us to love. Paul also says that when we love our enemies in this way, we heap burning coals on their heads. Let me just talk about that for a moment as we finish. We heap burning coals on their heads. This imagery is associated with judgment in the Old Testament. So it seems that Paul is saying something similar to what he said in verse 19. Just as we can trust that God will take vengeance, so too can we be freed up to love our enemies, knowing that God will use even this to execute his judgment. Knowing that God will use even our benevolence, God will use even our kind deeds to them to execute his judgment. But many have pointed out that this idea of heaping burning coals on their head may be a reference to bringing shame on them for their evil. The imagery of the, the heaping coals on the head is bringing shame down upon them in their evil. In other words, our good shows how evil their evil really is. There they are mistreating us. There they are doing all kinds of loathsome, painful, horrific things to us. And once, as I said last week, we've got it made. We've got it made. But there they are doing these evil things to us. And our good, and then we return that with good. And it, and it just highlights, it puts a massive spotlight on how evil what they're doing is. I am doing this to a person who's taking care of me? In the face of what I'm doing to them, I am, I am mistreating this person and they are, they are giving me necessary food and drink to live. They care about my well-being and my life. I'm trying to take their life and they're trying to sustain my life. Whoa! Bringing shame. In other words, our good shows how evil their evil really is and then either has the effect of producing repentance unto salvation or further justice in God's judgment. Either way, we entrust that to God. By doing them good, we pray for them, we bless them, that they too will become Christians, that they too will stop persecuting Christians, that they too will become lovers of their enemies. But at the very least, that God's justice will be done. Either way, either way, we know where our heart ought to be. We know where our actions ought to be. Loving, blessing, seeking the good, pursuing peace, trusting God, and showing acts of kindness even to those who hate us. This is godliness. This is living as a true Christian in the world. Listen to Christ more than we listen to men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for convicting us. Thank you for showing us the way of the Savior in the world. God, we live in very contentious times 
very divided times. We have so many opinions on so many different things. And all it takes is a click to find those who agree with us and who agree with us so vehemently and in ways sometimes that are not peaceable. Father, we ask that you would help us to be discerning. Help us to be fully orbed believers. Help us to follow the ethic of Christ in all areas, not just in some. Help us be Christian in the world. Help us not to be hijacked, Father, by uh, political voices, cultural voices that would uh, seek to hijack Christians for its own purpose. Father, help us be aliens and strangers in these contentious days and follow our peaceable and yet truth-proclaiming Savior. Father, be with us now as we come together around the Lord's Supper. Thank you for this unifying act that we get to participate in each week, how it binds us to each other and how it binds us to Christ. Father, we pray that faith would fill our hearts. And if there's any this morning who is suffering at the hands of an enemy, specifically, Father, I pray that they would be encouraged to suffer trustfully and that they would be able to show supernatural, spirit-empowered love to the person or persons who hate them. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.